0: If you're a veteran or military spouse of an early stage startup or small business and feel like you're making it up as you go, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Transition, where we demystify the entrepreneurial experience for veterans and military spouses who've already made or looking to make the transition from the military into entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the voice of the Bonker. I'm a Marine Corps veteran, social entrepreneur, and member of the Bonker Labs branding team. In the following episode of The Transition, I'm joined by Navy veteran, serial entrepreneur, and venture capitalist, Josh Carter. Josh holds multiple roles in the venture space, including director of Blue Ventures, a nonprofit strategic alliance formed to accelerate innovation and sustainability in support of an inclusive blue economy. Additionally, he's also a principal at 1859 Ventures, an Oregon-based, focused, industry-agnostic, $5 million seed fund with a team of serial entrepreneurs focused on founders working on transformative solutions. Needless to say, Josh is a boss. He's no stranger to entrepreneurship, both as an operator who's been in the trenches like many of you listening to this show, and an ecosystem builder holding leadership roles at entrepreneurial organizations, including CEO of Patriot Bootcamp, a nonprofit on a mission to equip active-duty military members, veterans, and their spouses with the education, resources, and community needed to be successful technology entrepreneurs. Josh has been in the ecosystem for over a decade, first as an agency owner, then tech entrepreneur, and eventually ascending into his role now as an ecosystem builder and venture capitalist. What initially inspired me to reach out to Josh was his background with Patriot Bootcamp, because as an educator in the space, I want to know the best practices for teaching entrepreneurship to our community. Little did I know, Josh has been through the entrepreneurial gamut, Many of us dream of. On the show, he opens up about his first venture, Plunk, a digital marketing agency, and how he managed to use the revenue to launch his first tech product, BrightWork.io, eventually raising capital and becoming a tech stars portfolio company. He shares the good, the bad, and the ugly about the journey and what led him to where he is now. Before you hear from Josh and I, be sure to subscribe to the Transition newsletter at the link in the show notes. If there's a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or in the newsletter, shoot me an email at mike.stedman at bunkerlabs.org or message me directly on LinkedIn at IronMikeStedman. This episode of The Transition is brought to you by MetLife Foundation and their commitment to supporting veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. In addition, MetLife Foundation also provides mentorship and financial health resources to veterans and military spouses transitioning into the workforce. As always, I hope you enjoyed today's j- show. And that accelerates you on your own entrepreneurial journey. Josh, welcome to the bonker. What's going on, brother?
1: Sir, thank you for having me, man. I'm I'm excited.
0: I'm always excited when I jump on and um on with a fellow podcaster, right? Like your audio sounds good. I was like, I wasn't expecting it, but then I, I remembered yeah. that you do host your own podcast. I think you called one of them is what, uh, Veteran Founder. And what's the other one? Yeah.
1: The Veteran Founder Podcast. We've been doing that for Oh, God, four or five years now. And we've had over 100-something episodes. And then I have a music one I've done since 2008 called uh, The 510. And that one's more, when we started it, uh, we started it because I was booking bands in the Bay Area. That was my first sort of foray into entrepreneurship. And and I lost just a stupid amount of money doing that. But I wanted to stay in the music industry, so we decided to run like an online publication webzine type of thing. And uh, and so we launched the 510 in 2008, so it's been a long time. And really just started to, we just had a website and a little embedded player on there. We've just played music, and then every Monday night we'd interrupt it and play like an interview of some band or artist. And that's sort of uh, because podcasts are obviously a thing now. We've changed it to being more topical, and uh, or less topical, I should say, more biographical. So we spent a lot of time just talking about their journey, where they've been, what they've done. And same thing with the veteran. It's more. Let's talk about your journey and where you've been and the lessons you've learned.
0: What do you enjoy about podcasting? Why do you still do it after
1: all these years? Dude, it's it's the journey and just hearing people's story. Everybody's got a, a remarkable story. Everybody does. It's um, and I feel like everybody has their a, a great story to tell that is interesting. And when people hear it, and oftentimes they contextualize their journey. Right, so for me, I've gone through a lot of different things, uh, and hopefully, the things I've learned along the way uh, help people in their own journey. And the same can be said for all the guests that we bring on. Is I, I ask every every interview, whether it's the Veteran Founder Podcast or the or the Five Ten, is what's the biggest thing you fucked up, and what have you you know that could have scuttled everything you ever worked for, and what did you learn from it? Every single time doesn't matter if you're a musician or a veteran entrepreneur. I want to learn that part. And hopefully that helps somebody that's listening. Yeah,
0: I still it's funny, man. I remember when I was laying in my bed in like 2019 and I was like, I want to be a podcaster. Right. Yeah. And I read all these books. I had done all the prep work. Right. But I hadn't actually launched a show. And then yeah. that one night, I was laying in my bed, and I was just like, I'm going to do it. I just hopped up. I created the show script and everything like that. And I reached out to a a local kind of podcast network and they helped train me up and get me start, get me started. It's crazy that I look at myself now. as like, I'm a podcaster, I'm a writer, I'm all these different things. But I remember when I wanted to be a podcaster and now that I am one, right, I just think it's such a powerful medium for us to share lessons learned and knowledge. And, you know, a lot of our listeners, they're not going to go to graduate school and get an MBA You know, they're just learning business, you know, on the fly. And so having these platforms, your podcast, this podcast is a great way to, you know, uh, educate them along the way and doing it in a powerful way, which is sharing stories, obviously. And uh, that's how we communicate as human beings. That's what people remember. And so I just think it's so dope. And I found Josh on LinkedIn, of all places. (laughs) And I don't know if you commented on a post or I saw you pop up, but I started scrolling your profile. I was like, oh, man, you're a Navy veteran? Enlisted? I was like, yo, I got to get you on the podcast, you know? Well,
1: it's funny. Like, I what, what was interesting to me is, like, how were we not connected before? That's, I think, no. why I connected. I hit connect. I was like, wait a minute. why? How are we not connected? We have, like, 100 or something fellow uh, folks that we've connected with. And I'm like, how have I not connected with this guy before now? So I was shocked that we weren't
0: connected before. So we're going to have a lot to talk about. And I can't <laughs> sum up all the <laughs> things that Josh identifies as so i'm gonna let him introduce himself to y'all oh, man. and uh we're gonna uh i think it's gonna be great just sharing all your lessons learned and stuff and like you said before we went live about all the mistakes you made
1: <laughs> yeah well it was funny in 2008 when we started doing the 510 we didn't there were no podcasts so we didn't have so i literally had my old laptop with a, a little mixer that plugged into a usb and i had slr mics so I had like a mobile studio that I would go to these venues and we'd go backstage and we interview bands backstage at these venues. So it wasn't like nobody knew that was what podcasting was. We just were doing interviews. So it's funny you say like, you know, learning all these things and going and reading books and stuff. We didn't have that stuff in 2008. We just kind of did it. And everybody asked me because we've had George Clinton, Henry Rollins, Margaret Cho, Imagine Dragons. We've had big names on our show. And everybody asked me the same question. We're like, how did you get those? And we and the same answer is we just asked and people said yes. You know? And that so that's how you you start to get your podcast really start to level it up every single time is you're just asking. Hey, will you come on? And people of course want to talk. And you're going to get more nos and yeses. That's the same for entrepreneurship and raising money and capital and stuff. You're going to get more nos and yeses, but it only takes that one yes and now you have an episode, right?
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So, how do you uh, how do you describe yourself? I want you to intro. I want you to formally introduce yourself to the transition <laughs> listeners today. Yeah. Uh,
1: well, my name's Josh Carter, as Mike said. Mike said, and I am an entrepreneur, a venture capitalist, uh, advocate for early stage startups, especially those that are underrepresented. Um, father, husband, uh, Oregonian. I live in Oregon. We moved from uh, California to Oregon uh, almost ten years ago now. Um so that's it. And a Navy vet, obviously. I think that's that uh me being in the Navy uh has really played an a huge part in my entrepreneurial journey. And we could talk about that if you like.
0: When did you get exposed to the veteran entrepreneur ecosystem? I feel like you're one ones that yeah. created it, if I'm being honest. <laughs> no,
1: like- no, no, no. There are many others. Tyler's uh you know, Todd from Bunker Labs and Taylor from uh Patriot Bootcamp and and there's others that came before me, well before me. Um, I'm just, I was just ha- happy to be a part of it. Uh, so I, let's see, I think it was 2014 or 15. I went to Wisconsin and I attended the first, well, it wasn't the first, I think it was like the fourth Patriot bootcamp in Madison, Wisconsin. And at the time we were doing Plunk, which was a digital agency, but we we're thinking about this product. So as you know, digital agencies, we work on sort of these job by job basis. So we get, you know some sort of project. Uh, hopefully, it's it's a, a firm commitment that's long term, but most of it is like just project to project. And we realized that we couldn't sustain a business model that way because it's unpredictable revenue. We wanted predictable revenue. And so, because we were so small, we couldn't be agency of record for all these big businesses. So, we had to figure out how are we going to do this? And we were getting crumbs. We were the way we built our, our company was, as I, you know, as I told you, I'm, I was in the music industry for a long time. And this one company out of New Jersey called The Syndicate, uh, they would send us new music all the time. And at some point, um, when we started doing Plunk, they wanted to do digital marketing as an extra service to what they were providing their clients. And since I'd already had an uh, existing relationship, um, we were like, well, let's do it for you. We'll build whatever you need us to build. We'll help you really grow out your products and services. So we were sort of this private label, uh, agency for the syndicate. And so we did stuff for Taco Bell. So Taco Bell has like the feedthebeat.com, which is this program that they give bands money or a gift card. And they can go to any Taco Bell on the planet and it allows them to feed, get fed while they're on tour. We rebuilt that entire platform. So the back end, the front end, the website, everything. We rebuilt that whole thing for them. We did some stuff for uh, Comedy Central. We did some stuff for Disney. Uh, we did a ton of stuff for bands. And that's how we sort of started the the company. We did it on the back of that. And then we would go to these other bigger agencies like 72 and Sunny and Saatchi and Saatchi and RGA and Wyden and Kennedy, the big boys. And we said, "Look, give us your crumbs. I know you're getting a ton of inbound, and that's great. That's like that's what feeds us. Give us your crumbs, and we'll take them. You know, the the little companies that can't afford your services, send them to us, and we'll happily take them. And so we that's how we built the business. But again, we were trying to find a way to um, sustain the business long term and have more predictable revenue. So we created a spinoff company called Brightwork, and Brightwork was a backend as a service to help developers build quicker. So we were building things over and over again, like for Pepsi and the Super Bowl or Disney and their widgets or whatever we were doing. And we're doing the same thing over and over. We were configuring the same MongoDB. We were spinning up an EC2 instance and in an S3 bucket. I mean, we're just doing everything the same over and over. And we're like, there's got to be a way to just have this pre configured. So all we have to do is write a few lines of code, we get a RESTful endpoint point our front end to it and everything worked and that's what we built we built a platform that could do that and the original intent was we were going to build this company we were going to um, get it to a point where we can scale it and build plunk in parallel with two different staffs and then at some point plunk was going to acquire Brightwork, right so that we can all sort of be back into one company so we spun that company out the problem was nobody wanted to work on plunk anymore <laughs> so we shut Plunk down because nobody everybody wanted to work on the shiny new thing. So we um we built Plunk or we built Brightwork. We got it in the hands of a few key customers like Netflix, Janrain, Apple. They all signed up for our alpha and um that was enough of a carrot to get Techstars to bite. And the reason I think was because of that attendance at Patriot Bootcamp. I met a guy that was from Techstars at Patriot Bootcamp because as you know Patriot Bootcamp used to be part, well, sort of ancillary to Techstars. Um, They were on the board. Every board meeting, we would go to Boulder, Colorado, and we would go have our board meetings at Techstars at HQ. So David Cohen, David Brown, uh, and others were on the board of, of Patriot Bootcamp. So I met this guy from Techstars, and he was like, have you ever applied to Techstars? I'm like, yeah, we've applied several times, and we've gotten denied every time. And he goes, I think you're applying to the wrong program. And I didn't know that. And a lot of think founders that are interested in tech stars don't know that different programs have different strengths and weaknesses. We certainly didn't know that. We thought we're just going to apply to the one that's closest to our house in Seattle. And so we got connected with a guy that was the director of Pipeline, and he connected us with either New York or Chicago. And we interviewed with both the MDs from both programs, and we felt like the MDs in Chicago really understood what we were doing. And so we applied to that program, got accepted, and in the summer of twenty seventeen or twenty sixteen, we moved to Chicago and went through TechStars. And so that's how all of that got going.
0: Now, for our listeners who are unfamiliar with Tech TechStars, can you uh, describe their their model for us?
1: Yeah, it's an accelerator for early stage startups. So if you have, and it's less like this today. It uh Techstars used to be you had a really early stage idea idea, in our case it was pre-revenue, and um they put you in front of mentors. It's like an MBA in a box, right? Like you're just learning everything from financial modeling to SEO to growth hacking to business development skill building, meeting with investors, meeting with mentors. And when I say mentors, like high-level mentors, uh Harper Reed, who was Obama's first CTO, was one of our mentors. Um uh, uh, Troy Hennikoff, who created sure Payroll and sold it off to Paychex. He was our MD. Uh, Sam Yagen, who created OKCupid, sold it to Match.com and became their CEO, was our mentor. Like High-level, amazing, top-tier people who helped us go through that program in Chicago. And so it's a global program. They have, I think, 60 programs at this point. Um, and they're just scattered all over the place.
0: Do they do investments and do they take a percentage of equity?
1: They do. They take six percent, and the total investment's around one hundred twenty thousand. Mm-hmm. And I know that's changing a bit because of the fact that, uh, you know, Y Combinator is probably the one that most people know about out of um, the Silicon Valley. Uh, y Combinator just changed their model. They're doing five hundred thousand on a safe, and ours was one hundred twenty thousand. A hundred of it was on a convertible note. So I think
0: we're seeing that model change a little bit now. Got gotcha. you. Well, you dropped some big names, Taco Bell, Netflix. So like our listeners are assuming like, sounds like y'all were printing money with Plunk. What are you doing? You know, i <laughs> yeah, yeah. curious to kind of to, to um, share some more insight on that, because I know it's like, why do you feel like your team or why did you chase the shiny object instead of kind of building out Plunk?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, Plunk was great. But again, it was one of those things where we were just getting project, to project. So while we were working with big names, it didn't equate to like big dollars. I think you know one of the things that we learned early on uh, and didn't in, and didn't implement is that we discounted our services way too too low. And a lot of founders do this, right? They'll, well, I want to get known in the market, so I have to discount my services, and that's a huge no-no. Um, your time is the most valuable thing that you have as an entrepreneur in the early stages, don't give it away for free, because when you discount your time, that means you don't value it. Why, el- why would anybody else value it? So don't ever discount your time, don't ever discount your services, don't ever discount your product, uh, because what you're saying is essentially, um, it's not worth that much. And that's the way your customers will feel. So you, they're used to paying the big bucks, make them, make them pay the big bucks.
0: One of my goals, my BHAG for Ironbound Media is to be like you, actually. You know, I want to generate <laughs> enough margin to where we can fund our own digital products. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a a, a tech a startup, sure. but it could be an ebook or it could be whatever. We, you know, I just want to have the margin to play yeah. around, right, um, to continue to fund, you know, ideas and things that I have. And then also as a founder of color, invest in other founders of color. Um, And the reality of it is, is there's a lot of agencies that have done that um, successfully, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, I listened to who's the guy from uh, tiny, I think it's Mm -hmm. Andrew, I forgot his last name. Um, But they kind of got started the same way did his digital agency funded, you know, his first tech product and learned a lot along the way. Um, So I think it's an interesting. uh, It's an interesting model for sure. Yeah. Now, one of the things we do on this podcast is we take off our armor, Josh. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, y'all. WeWork's lab manager, Techstars alumni. I mean, you've yes. done a lot of things I think our listeners aspire to do. And now, mm. particularly as a venture capitalist. But one of the things I do on this podcast is, you know, I try to get past the hype. Right. Mm. So as a serial entrepreneur, venture capitalist, et cetera, what's something you're struggling with personally or professionally currently?
1: Time. I say yes to a lot of things. I think part of it is I just um, I have ADHD and so I can't just do one thing. It'll just drive me insane. I'm not the kind of person that um, punches a clock and is done at four o'clock and is just happy with the status quo. I've never been like that. And I think early in my career, that was a hindrance. A lot of employers were like, wait a minute, you're doing this on the side. Like, how are you going to give us any time? And um, and I've learned along the way that that mindset is changing. Especially for folks that are in tech or VC, like there, you can do multiple things and still be successful. So for me, it's just time. I say yes to just too many things. So uh, you know, right now I have the fund, the 1859 Ventures. We invest. Uh, if we want to be the first check into underrepresented founders in the state of Oregon. And by underrepresented, I say women, BIPOC, LGBTQ, and uh, military veteran founders in the state of Oregon, because nobody's solving that right now, at least in our state. Um, and then obviously I'm, I work at Maritime Blue. I oversee all of our entrepreneurial programs. We have by the end of this year, we'll have four total programs, so it's a lot to juggle as just a daytime job. And then um, I, you know, locally uh, we're helping to start a co-working space for founders. And uh, by co-working, I say, um, it, you know, you get a desk and all that stuff, and it's just like other WeWork type of things the difference being is that if you're a founder, it's $100 a month. And the purpose is we just want to get everybody to the table. Because when you are all in the same room, whether you're a founder of color or LGBTQ or whatever the case may be, you still struggle with a lot of the same things. Like, how do I find my first customer? How do I get business development? What are channel sales? Like all these things that people don't teach you when you first start your business. And so we want to get people in the room so that they can all say, this is what I'm struggling with this and then somebody go, well, this is how I sold it. And the only way we can do that is get everybody in the same room on the same page. And that's what we do here in, in, uh, in Portland. Um, and beyond that, you know, just being a busy dad and husband. So a lot going on. Time is what I struggle with the
0: most. How do you keep your confidence up?
1: Um, yeah, that's that's hard because you get kicked in the teeth all the time. Um, you know, when I started the venture capital firm, Uh, I didn't realize how hard it was going to be. Everybody told me it's it's pretty hard, but it is 10 times harder to be a VC than it is to be a founder. And I'll tell you why. If you are a founder of a company, you know where the VCs are that invest in your space. Really easy to find them. It is really difficult to find individuals that are, one, wealthy enough to invest in a VC firm, uh, and two, in our case, we're very philanthropic, mission-driven-minded. It's hard to find folks that are... that understand the mission and buy into it. A lot of people in Oregon, and we could spend a whole episode about this. Everybody in Oregon understands what the problem is, right? There's not not enough money going into underrepresented founders. 2.9% of all venture capital goes to women in our state, less if you're a person of color. And LGBTQ and military veterans aren't even in the study that gets released every year. So it's a huge, huge problem. And I'll sit across from somebody and say, and they go, yep, that's a huge problem. I'm like, cool, I'm solving that problem. You just put some money in my fund and we can solve it together. Yeah, you know, I don't know if it's that big of a problem. You know, suddenly like when it's, a, you know, money comes up, not that big of a problem, right? Or, and I've heard this several times, you know, Josh, when I look at a, a pitch deck, I don't see color. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's the fucking problem, right? You're not, you're not deliberately going out and seeking out these people who need the help the most. And could go out and really do a lot of good with it. So that's the challenge. And um, and it's just one that I've not been able to figure out how to solve.
0: I love the fact that you're kind of taking the lead on that. And I'll tell you, like, I am I got an article pulled up here from Inc. Magazine's, like, top 50, you know, business leaders. It's top 50 leadership and management experts, right? None of them are of color. <laughs> you know? Right. And so, right. again, it's this yeah. perception around, you know, in business, the businesses that we highlight, the leaders, the thought leaders that we highlight. It's like it's almost as if we don't exist. But until mm-hmm. you're a person of color um, or an underrepresented founder, right, it's hard for you to see what's in plain sight. And it's always mm-hmm. there. I think it's cool that you're tackling that. And I also like a couple of things you said, one, about the local focus, Oregon. I mm-hmm. think that's a dope model. I've been following High Alpha out of Wisconsin. And, you know, that's how they got started. Right. Trying to bring right. ventures there. You've got Arch Grants in uh, St. Louis. And, you know, yeah. I aspire to do something similar in Newark one day. I'm not there yet, but I would love to have like a Newark kind of focus of building, yeah. you know, more uh, uh, entrepreneurs here and in the state of New Jersey. And the thing about co-working space, I visited the Nashville Entrepreneur Center and you literally get to see. I don't know what's the word. I'm social mobility in person, right? Mm -hmm. You can get the hot desk for $50. Then you get the, the room for $150 and then you get the conference for 500 and to have spaces like that for entrepreneurs to grow and learn for one another is super pop. That's something I want to bring again here. And we have our co working spaces a little bit, but I still think, you know, Nashville was probably the place that most inspired me of what I think done uh, right looks like.
1: Yeah, and I've, I've, you know, the reason why I wanted this to ha- happen in Oregon is, you know, to your point, there are spaces already doing this. Uh, 1871 in Chicago. If you don't, if you own a startup, have a startup in Chicago, you're going to end up in 1871, hands down. Um, Pritzker Group, uh, Hyde Park Angels, Hyde Park Ventures, they have offices in 1871, so founders don't have to walk across town to meet with them. They're all in one space, right? WeWork Labs, which is a perpetual accelerator program I ran, we didn't put one in in Chicago. You know why? Because 1871 already solves that. So we didn't we didn't even go into that market. Um, Austin has Capital Factory, right? Uh, Josh Bear runs amazing space down there, and South by Southwest it's the place that's hopping uh, every time. So there's other ecosystems that are built around these spaces. And I think any market, any smaller market that is looking at ways that they can connect their ecosystem in a more cohesive way needs to look at those models. And that's what we're doing here in Portland is we need to figure out how to bring people together because in Portland, COVID really did us, um, did a lot of damage. I mean, I feel like we're starting over in a lot of things. Events that used to happen all the time and used to be wildly popular And widely attended are gone. They're all gone now. And so we're starting to have to rebuild a lot of those events, a lot of the meetups, a lot of the things that really were helping the ecosystem grow. The other challenge is we get a lot of attrition. Founders have a big exit, they move out of state very quickly. So we don't have what other ecosystems have where you have this perpetual flywheel. Founder gets invested in early on, they get an exit, they become angel investors, and they just kind of you know, loops around. We don't have that here. We get, you know, early investors from out of state that invest in our startups. Those founders are like, well, nobody in Portland helped me. They get an exit, they leave. So we need to fix that.
0: Yeah. That's really dope, man. Kudos to you for that. And I gotta acknowledge, you know, what brought us here today, which is Bunker Labs, a national network of veteran military spouse entrepreneurs dedicated to helping our community start and grow uh businesses. And this ties into that, right? Having a space you know, granted, we're spread out all over the country, but I think Bunker does a great job of keeping that flywheel moving, you know, where people know they have a community they can come back, support other entrepreneurs, you know, and get cultivated themselves. And that's how I met Todd Connor was
1: 2016. They were still a pretty young organization. They were working out at 1871 and I walked past their office. I was like, what is that? I had no idea what they were. And I'd already gone through Patriot Bootcamp and uh, and I met Todd and and we were friends today. I, I love him, I, I think he's a, a wonderful human being, very community driven. And, uh, and when I became the COO at Patriot Bootcamp, he and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to collaborate more. And same with other VSOs, there's other ones I sit on the, I used to sit on the board for Operation Code, which is a nonprofit for veterans who wanna learn how to code to get into bigger, better, high-tech careers. And so we were trying to find ways to collaborate better so that we can connect. And when I was at Patriot Bootcamp, one of the things we did was we created a program called Vet Hacks. It was a hackathon for entrepreneurs to come in, see if their idea had any merit, spend a weekend building. And so that was Patriot Bootcamp, um, uh, Operation Code, and Bunker Labs. We did that in D.C., and we did it in Seattle. And then when I left Patriot Bootcamp, they stopped doing it. So it's gone, unfortunately.
0: (laughs) We're going to talk about curriculum because I'm curious to know, like how you advise and how you think about, you know, what entrepreneurs, particularly veteran entrepreneurs need to learn. But before that, I got to know, how did you become an entrepreneur in the first place? Right. So you mm. take us back to like, all right, I'm in the Navy, you know, I'm transitioning mm. out and somehow I end up, you know, start my own agency.
1: Yeah, well, uh, when I went in the Navy, I went because I wanted to be an animator. I had done some animation work and I wanted to draw. That was what I thought my career was going to be. And when I talked to the recruiter, they're like, well, we have this illustrator draftsman role, uh, but there's no a school for it. And uh, idiot being me, not talking to anybody. I went in and had no rate or no rank yet at all. Oh. So <laughs> I started as an E1 deck seaman uh, below, those- like lowest of the low. Yeah. yeah. Lowest of the low chasing and rust and, and chip and paint. And, uh, but I, I signed the lowest amount of time I possibly could so that I could get out quickly and go to school because I wanted to go to the art Academy in San Francisco. So I did three years, 30 countries in that time. So we were always gone. Did Persian Gulf twice, did counter drug ops in Caribbean five times. And then, um, and when I got out, I got out as an E3 QM. So I was a quartermaster when I finally got out. Cause I was like, man, I don't want to be chipping paint and chasing rust. These guys in the while I'm sitting here driving and standing watch, they're just sitting around and on their computers in the wheelhouse, like in the chart house. Like, that's what I want to do. And then when we're not underway, guess what? They're not doing anything because they, you know, there's nothing to do. So um, so that's I struck out and got into QM. And when I got out, I went to art school, uh, but quickly realized that's not what I wanted to do as a career because it was just so. Uh, There was so much nepotism. You had to really understand how to get around and navigate that uh, space. And I was just so disenfranchised by it. And when I got out of art school, I was lost. I had no idea what I was going to do. I just, I worked at carpet stores. I worked odd jobs here and there. I just didn't know what I was going to do. And one day a a friend of ours um, said, you know, this phone company is hiring. And at the time, the phone company, which was a big deal in 99, um, it was really hard to get into because it's a union job. Uh, they only opened applications like once a year and you had to test in to get into it. And so I did. I tested and I got in and I was climbing poles and crawling under houses, pulling in residential phone line like that's how long ago this was because uh, nobody has a residential phone line anymore. And at, after a while, I started to learn that trade and I spent nearly 15 years in various parts of telecom whether it was climbing up poles or putting in large systems. Or my last job was at a small startup nobody had ever heard of before called Twilio. Now, of course, Twilio is huge and they're a publicly traded company and they're part of the startup ecosystem. That, I think, was where I first understood about what a startup was. Because at Twilio, I don't know, there are 3,000, 4,000 employees now, but we were a team of 50. We fit in the kitchen when I first got there. We were at Activision's old headquarters on First and Folsom in San Francisco, and when I first got there, we were still thanking people in our weekly meeting for helping us the week before. Like, that's how small the team meetings were, and it was an amazing ride because I got to watch and have a front row seat with Jeff Lawson and um, and the other founders of how to really grow a startup from nothing to something spectacular and solve a huge problem, and I was a telecom nerd at the time, so... From going, and I just put in systems that were big as a refrigerator, right? And so from going to that, to like writing four lines of code and having a phone ring, blew my mind. Um, so I, it was somewhere, that's a great example of taking something and disrupting a huge, huge industry. Um, when we were talking to telco providers, they were laughing at us. Because what happened was, a lot of the people at Twilio, they didn't speak telecom. So they would go into these meetings and call DIDs dids, and people would laugh, like literally laugh. And we'd be like, hey, we need redundancy in our our platform. like, yeah, 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 whatever. Now, companies like Bandwidth, Quest, all these companies that laugh Twilio out of the room now have their own APIs. That's how you know you've changed an entire industry, is when they laugh at you first, and now they're adopting things. And we've seen that in other Tesla is a great example, right? Everybody's laughing about these stupid cars. Now, we're going to have electric cars in the next 10 years. Everybody's going to have one, right? So that taught me a lot about what a disruptive company looks like. And I, I was hooked. That's it. I wanted in. And the great thing about Twilio is at the early stages, when you first start at Twilio, doesn't matter if you're the janitor or the CFO. Within two weeks, you have to build your first app using Twilio. And so my app was, I built an app where, You texted the name of a band and it would tell you when it came through your town, right? And that gets your creative juices flowing. I was already, you know, an artist mindset, but that was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Like, what else can I build? And so when we started Plunk, it was because I was, I loved that creative process. I would get in a room with somebody and be like, what do you want to solve today? Okay, let's build it. This is how we're going to do it. And this is how creative we're going to be. I love that. And that's how we got into, that's how I got into being an entrepreneur.
0: Did you bootstrap Plump or did you, I mean, how were you able to get that business off the ground?
1: Yeah, we, like I said, we, um, um, we got the syndicate because of the other radio stuff that I'd been doing. Um, but yeah, we bootstrapped
0: all that. So I have a million dollar insight that I took down for myself as an agency owner of didn't even realize that you have bigger agencies out there that probably do get a lot of inbound, but they can't fulfill it, you know? And so touching base with them, you know, as a potential channel partner. And you know, yeah. especially you guys out there getting started out, you don't know what you don't know. So right. early on, you know, getting those swings at the plate can help you later on when you do get those bigger clients. So I didn't even think about that. But I'm, I mean, I, I always promote about getting a channel partner. I call it a Trojan horse, but as an mm-hmm. agency owner, I didn't think about other agencies that uh, yeah. uh, aren't a good fit. There And there are
1: tons of them out there, right? Every ecosystem, every city has either a remote office of a bigger, uh, bigger agency, or there's a pretty good size agency in that town, and we just happened to figure out that Huntington Beach or that SoCal area, what most of them were within were within five miles of each other. So Sachi and Sachi, seventy two and Sunny, all of them were like within a couple miles. So we just we rented a house, an Airbnb in Venice, and we just spent a week courting them, going to their office, talking to them about what we're doing sharing with them some of the uh platforms we'd already built showing them what we were capable but being there like showing up and sitting down and shaking their hands and just getting building a relationship because at the end of the day you know you can email them you can um you know stalk them on twitter and instagram and all that stuff but uh you know the thing that sells it is you you as the entrepreneur you as the capable person that can fulfill them because if they're sending business to you, it means that they're vouching for you and you can't do that by just cold emailing them. You have to build a relationship so that they can have enough ammunition to vouch for you.
0: Y'all hear that? He said, stop hiding behind social media and email, get out Uh, there and actually talk to people, You you know, start building real relationships. Now, one of the things I'm curious about Josh of, okay, so you had the experience running this agency. Then you started to, uh, you built your own product. What, Do you feel like it was harder being a uh, venture backable tech startup founder or being a small business owner?
1: I mean, they're both really, really hard. Um, When we failed Brightwork, I did a talk called uh, "Surviving Startup Failure," and I did it at Patriot Bootcamp in Denver in 2017, I think. And I had a room full of entrepreneurs that were like me, military veteran, former veterans. Most of them had seen combat. I'd never seen combat before. That wasn't what I did. I went in during peacetime and got out before all the shit hit the fan. So, <clears throat> when I when I sat down with them and gave them my story, I had founders stand up, veteran founders stand up and say, "You know, if my startup ever failed, I could see myself hurting myself or if I didn't wake up at night, that'd be okay." That was a wake-up call for me. The fact that what we're doing is so hard that these men and women that have seen atrocious things, the darkest of of what humans can do to each other. But if their startup failed, that's the thing that's going to cause them to hurt themselves? That's crazy to think about. So what we're doing as founders is one of the hardest things a person can do, genuinely, 100%. So I think being able to contextualize, finding somebody to lean on, Um, we do something in Portland called Coffee with Co-Founders. And I do something in our programs called the CEO Roundtable. And they both serve the same purpose. The purpose is to talk a little bit about what you're struggling with. And it could be anything. And it it could just be something that's not even related to your business. But what are you struggling with? And hopefully somebody within that sphere, that ecosystem, will say, I dealt with that too. Or just be an empathetic ear. And be able to have an outlet for the things that we're feeling. And I don't think we talk about how hard it is enough and the mental uh, strain it takes on you and all the emotional things. The other is that, you know, when you go through all this stuff, when you go through being a founder, you're taking your family and your friends with you on that journey and they have to be okay with it. The worst thing that happened as a founder in our thing that really I think was part of the failure of Brightwork was. I had a co-founder that when we got into TechStars, went to his wife and said, I'm going through this, whether you like it or not. That's the worst thing you can do. Uh, when we found out we were getting into TechStars, I had a barbecue with both of our families. Cause like now we're married, right? Like now this is real. Now we're going through this together. And I knew that because I'd already gone through a startup before he had never gone through a startup before. So, um, so you have to recognize that, that your family goes through this as well. And I think, one of the things after I got, after Brightwork failed, and we could talk a little bit about that if you'd like, but after Brightwork failed and I was getting into new things, the thing that was eye opening for me uh, about how I was spending too much time on my work stuff was my son, uh, I think he was eight at the time, was drawing a picture of the family. And my picture was me with my laptop. That's how my son saw me, was just me and a laptop. That was huge. So, I spent a lot of time after that figuring out how I can balance everything I wanted to get done and everything I needed to get done with my family. So, I think there's a lot of lessons in there. But the big thing is, you know, like find an outlet for the things that you're struggling with, find people that can help mentor you, find people that can help contextualize the things that you fail.
0: I think what you just said is so important. Um, and I will tell you, you know, I'll take off my armor. As I was the last month of finishing my first book, Black Fred and Entrepreneur, I had sat down with my girlfriend and said, hey, this month, you know, I just need to finish this book. I got to get it across the line. I didn't realize until after it was over the mental toll it was taking on her. Just this idea that like I wasn't prioritizing her, you know, Mm -hmm. I was writing this book and then I had my company, you know, and it just made her feel like she was at the bottom of the the list and you know when you think about building these businesses right i don't think any of us want to scorch the earth along the way you know this ain't sherman's march in atlanta so -hmm. we do need to be intentional about how we're affecting those around us and i really appreciate you on being vulnerable and, and, and sharing about that and i didn't realize bright work failed i'm curious to learn a little bit more um about that
1: yeah there's a lot of things that attributed to that uh, failure. I think w- the biggest one was we didn't monetize from the get go. And I tell founders all the time, like you're building a culture in your company, whether it's, you know, we want to be empathetic or we want to wear the customer shoes or we want to make sure that we are, you know, being frugal, whatever the values you- and culture you set at your company, the most important one, of course, in any business is revenue, like cash is king or queen. Uh, and so we didn't, we didn't, Um turn on monetization at all uh in the first year of Brightwork, and and it was a source of contention between my co-founder and our and, and myself where i was going and meeting with investors and they were like josh if you had x number of of users this month paid users this month and it went up you know incrementally every month we'd write you a check right now so i'd go back to my cto and be like hey we need to turn on monetization like now it needs to happen he's like no no no. we're gonna get to 5,000 users and then do it we're like no no no, nobody's funding that model anymore. and so it was a a clash, certainly. and then you know other things that were red flags where um he would never come to an investor meeting, right and um he would be like, you know that's not my job. if you have a co-founder that's saying that's not my job, then that is an employee, not a co-founder. and I didn't recognize that fast enough. um the other was when we ran out of cash, um he had to go get a job and you know, I had you know, plenty in my reserves from, you know, other things that I had. So I didn't, for me, that wasn't a big deal. And I should have recognized that I should have been like, okay, I'm not going to take any salary. You take my salary. Let's keep this going. The other challenge was, um, when he left, I couldn't find anybody that was at his level to build this thing. Um, he was doing distributed systems, which is very complex. He's an architect. Like he's high. He was high level is high level developer. Couldn't find anybody to come in and and do what he was doing. And so it was a big hit by a bus problem. And so I tell founders all the time, like build in redundancy in your platform, but also build in redundancy in your people. So if like somebody gets hit by a bus, will that kill the entire business? If so, then you don't have a stable business. So there were a lot of things if I'm Monday morning quarterbacking uh, the business that led to its failure. But um, for me, it was not being an assertive CEO uh, in the company to be like, nope, we're turning on monetization on the CEO, like turn it on. Don't even, I don't know why you're arguing with me. Um, it can create tension, but again, I had an employee, not a co-founder and I should have been more assertive about that.
0: You know, as veterans, people tell us all the time, Oh, we're great leaders, right? That's why we make the best (laughs) entrepreneurs, but running a small business, running a venture requires a different level of leadership frameworks and skills that people don't, um, Tend to realize, right? right? Just in terms of like, what are you looking for in a co-founder? How do you hire people? You know all that other stuff, right? Yeah. And um, I think there's a huge opportunity in our community to start to talk more about that. You know, beyond just the, the you know value proposition. Cool, we got it. But once you're in the fight, you know, different set of skill sets that you need to learn. And you just even talking about that with the co-founder. Now I asked you before about your confidence, right? Yeah, having a startup that failed. Right? How are you? How did that affect your confidence moving forward?
1: Oh, it was huge, and I wrote a blog about this that is based on a book I'm writing called uh, "Startup Failure and Other Uplifting Anecdotes." But I was depressed. I was deeply depressed after that, and I couldn't get out of it for a long time. Like I couldn't get out of bed. I wasn't eating right. Um, I wasn't happy. Um, I was just like I lost my my purpose. I felt like I'd not only that, I think veteran founders, where they're, um, where they're different than regular founders, is that we don't like to disappoint anybody. We don't like to let anybody down. And I had let people down. I had let people down. I had friends that invested in our company, like put a pretty good amount of money into our company. And I, it was hard for me to get up and be like, I'm sorry, I lost your money, right? And then also, like, try to somehow have a regular relationship with them again. That was really difficult. And still there's still some friends I don't talk to because like I lost a good amount of their money and why would they ever want to talk to me again? So, um, so it's, it's one of those things where um, I, it hurt and it, it, to your point, it took, put a lot of dings in my armor a lot. And, um, and so I just, I needed to find out how I could get back up and stand back up and contextualizing my journey was the way I did that. And, um, that startup failure talk that I did at Patriot Bootcamp, that's what got me out of the funk. That's what was like, all right, I I can do this. I, I can share my fuck-ups with everybody and hopefully they learn and they figure out, like, this is something that um, is doable if I just avoid this pothole that Josh stepped in, right? And so that's what I do now is everything I do, whether it's through Patriot or not Patriot Bootcamp, sorry, uh, Maritime Blue. Or the venture fund or just talking to startup founders is like these are the steps you have to get to get out of that little chasm you're at you know i i speak to founders all the time that are like "I have this great idea i'm gonna go raise a hundred thousand from a venture fund and uh, get this idea off the ground nope you're not i don't care if you're black white brown yellow it doesn't matter you're not going to raise money from venture capital for your idea doesn't happen anymore Um, unless you had a great big exit prior you're not going to go raise money to have somebody fund your idea and get it off the ground. That's not happening. So the good news, though, is that there is an awful lot of money available to founders that are non-dilutive funding options, either the DOD, the EPA, or whatever three-letter agency you want to you know, bring up. They are flush with cash, and they want to invest in ideas, early ideas. There's a lot of grant money out there. Um, there's a lot of angel money out there. It has never been a better time to start a company than it is right now. And I know that seems weird, uh, but the fact that YC is giving founders 500,000 on a safe, that is mind blowing. And they're putting hundreds of companies through every year. Like, think about that a safe. If you actually read a safe, there's nothing in that that says you have to pay that back. Do you know why YC adopted that? It's because they don't believe you're going to succeed. And they don't want to do the paperwork when you fold. So they just did it on a safe. Because they just care about the top 10%. And that's what they're going to focus on. The 90%, they know they're going to fail. They don't want to do the paperwork to deal with that. So they did that. Because if they if they invest in the top 10%, doesn't matter what happens to that other 90%. They're still going to make money on that top 10%. So if you're a founder with a great idea. And you can be resourceful. It's a great outlet for you. To go figure out. Like 500000 is a lot of money, right? You can pay yourself, um, you know, a nominal salary. You can go hire everybody that you need to hire. You can go out and vet your idea and get it in the hands and get enough runway to get revenue. So um, so I think it's a great time to be a founder. And, and so to sort of button up what your question was about my confidence, I think being able to take all of the knowledge that I have as a founder and put that into uh, other founders so that they can get a better chance of succeeding. Um, That's what helps build my confidence is like I hear all the time from founders like, hey, I raised that money that you told me to go get. Like I've literally had founders raise hundreds of millions of dollars off of the advice I've given them or a connection I've given them. And that feels good to me. That builds confidence.
0: One of the things I'm working intentionally on this platform and behind the scenes at Bunker is really emphasizing this idea of empowering our stakeholders, that they're founders, right? And founders will launch multiple ventures, you'll fail, et cetera, but separating the founder from the business, right? Yeah. Because, you know, as you're aware, Josh, when a veteran comes out, they start a business, what do you do? They post it on LinkedIn, make themselves (laughs) founder and CEO, and tell the entire world about it before they validated the business model, even, right? And it's a lot of times it's their first venture. So they're learning all the lessons learned the hard way. And when things aren't going like they're supposed to, they're still trying to figure it out. They're still trying to accomplish the mission because they're not thinking like a founder. This is just one of many potential ideas. You know, they're not going through the frameworks and all this other stuff. So they're carrying this burden on this venture idea that they have. With no market need that was never going to succeed in the first place. But because they haven't separated themselves from the business idea, yep. um, it, I feel like it creates a lot of missed opportunity and growth, if that makes sense. I
1: call that falling in love with the product, not the customer, right? So many founders fall in love with what they're doing and not with the customers they're serving. That's the when you flip that mindset from like, this is an amazing idea. Right, I, I built it. It's amazing. I did it. It's great, great. But do your customers love it? Well, you know, we, I don't know. We we don't really have it in. A, then you don't have a business. So I tell founders all the time, you got you got to treat a business like a scientific process. You have a hypothesis. I think if I do this, people will find it valuable and they'll pay me X amount of dollars. That's your hypothesis. How are you going to prove it out? Got to collect data. You got to get it in the hands of customers to get that data. Once you have that data coming in, you can start to adjust things. Okay, now I'm getting to the closer whether I proved my hypothesis or is my hypothesis now changing. Well, I had this product, but now they're finding this, you know, more valuable. I'll give you a good example. Uh, John Sheehan who he and I worked together at Twilio started a company called Runscope. And Runscope ended up being this place where you could put your API in like this like test bed and see if it's a really good working API. That wasn't their model early on. They had a different model and customers are like, "Well, I want to test my API." And so they shifted to being an API testing company and they ended up exiting and getting bought by Computer Associates. You will change your 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 company and your you know what you're doing over and over again. It will always change. And John told me something really really important that I've always told founders. If you are not embarrassed by that first product, you are doing it wrong. It has to be ugly, clunky, fall down all the time. And when we launched BrightWork, we didn't have a user interface. People had to go into their terminal and created a a profile in their terminal. That's crazy to think about. We had 500 users the first day, and they didn't go to a website. They opened their terminal and created an API. So, I mean, yeah, you just got to fall in love with the customer. Like like I said before, like you're building a, cu- a culture in your company, and if that culture doesn't include how you're going to make money from the get-go, then you're probably on the wrong path. The other thing I will say a lot of founders do is they'll say, well, this is a great platform for this customer, but it's also good for this customer, and this customer, and this customer, and this customer, right? Like they, Now they're kind of boiling the ocean. And what I tell founders all the time is like, look, Jeff Bezos created Amazon and he said, I'm going to be the biggest bookstore in the world. Just that. And then when he did, he moved on to other things. And of course, now Amazon has a ton of things, but they didn't start that way. And you have to start to be the biggest whatever first, and then you can do other things. But pick your niche, pick what you're good at, and it'll allow you to find the right customer. Because if you build a platform and you say it's good for everybody, well, then you don't know who your customer is. You have to define who your customer is so you know where to find them. And then it's about finding the trunks, not the branches. Where do all your customers congregate? Is it associations? Is it conferences? Is it, you know, whatever. Find them instead of like going to individual branches. And that's how you build a business.
0: Fish where the fish are. And I, I, I'm glad you shared that because I was going to ask you. You served as an interim CEO. You're the active mm-hmm. CEO of Patriot Bootcamp right? And I have done Stanford Ignite. I've done freaking, I've probably done eight of those kind of programs to the point where I'm like, I feel like I've seen a lot of things, but I'm curious to learn from you in terms of like, what does good entrepreneur curriculum look like, particularly for Um, early stage founders?
1: It looks like empathy. It looks like any program that is not run by a former founder is a program that doesn't have enough teeth, right? And so the curriculum has to be led by somebody that's gone through that process before. Otherwise, how can you sit across from that person and trust that they know even what you're going through right now, right? And so I think a good program starts with empathy. It understands how to build on the deficiencies that all the founders have. So with my programs, I don't build a curriculum ahead of time. Now, there's a caveat to that. There's obviously things that founders, all of founders, struggle with. They don't tell their story very well. They don't know how to build a financial model very well. They don't know these certain fundamental things, and we run that through. But if I have 10 founders that I've accepted into my program, and they're all marketing whiz, guess what I'm not doing? We're not going to be doing marketing, right? It's going to be a waste of my time. It's going to be a waste of their time. So I think any program that just goes, oh, here's the lean startup mentality book. And we're going to just run right through that. And I'm going to teach you how to be a scrum master. I'm going to teach you. Awesome. Those have their, pra- their place, but it's kind of like venture, right? There's a difference between smart money and dumb money. And at the early stages, you don't want to take dumb money. You want to take smart money. That's the same with a program. You don't want a dumb program. Like there's, there's a place for those programs, uh, but you want to make sure that the program can add to where you are deficient as a founding, founding team. So if your founding team is great at, you know, the technical side, but you suck at business. You don't know how to find your customer. You don't know what, you know, channel partners are. You don't know how to build a business partner. You don't know how to, you know, what SEO is. You know, you haven't even even thought about that. Like finding those programs are key and critical to helping you grow your business. The other thing is the quality of the mentors. The mentors of our program make or break our companies. 100% We do, like I said before, we do a CEO roundtable. And it's really just the CEOs being able to contextualize what they're struggling with. The first hour of that program, we bring in somebody that has gone through that journey. So last year, we brought in Miguel McKelvey, who's the co-founder of WeWork. We brought in, this year, we brought in World Peace, former NBA player, won a ring with Kobe, um, talks a lot about mental health. Um, Those people come in, and they're able to say, This is where I screwed up. This is what I've learned. And this is what you can take that lesson from. Those programs, uh, the good programs, have those caliber of people that can come in and really help build better founders. That's the objective, is building better founders. Um, It's not, from my perspective, it's great that you can build a good business, but the founders are at the heart. Sorry, I got something in my eye.
0: The founders are at the heart of all of that. How do you, well, let me rephrase this, right? One thing I've noticed is almost it's like Accelerator Rodeo, where There's a lot of early stage founders. They're just going from one program to the other and not actually working on like their business. Mm -hmm. And so what are your thoughts on that, right? How should founders be prioritizing? like, okay, it's great to take advantage of Founder Institute and, you know, uh, Patriot Bootcamp and all this different stuff out there. But at a certain point, man, you got to be the man or woman in the arena. You know, yeah. like you got to get out there and start getting customers and driving revenue and start to build out your company. Um, and I feel like, and James Clear talks about being in motion versus actually taking action.
1: Yeah. If you're jumping from one program to another, especially if you've, I've seen this with founders all the time, they'll jump from one program to another, extracting the resources they get out of that program, but they're not spending any time getting any customers. The same could be said for companies that go out and get a tremendous amount of, of non dilutive capital from, say, some government agency. And that's what they're surviving on. They're like, well, we got to get the next grant, we got to get the next grant, well, what about getting the next customer, like, spend time finding customers, the, the programs are all great. But if you're bouncing from one to another, to your point, you're not focused on your customers. And that's what you need to be focused on, you need to be obsessed with your customer, you need to be giving as much time as you can with the cut to the customer. So in our programs, I know that My program can't have a detrimental effect on your momentum. So, we don't spend a lot of time every single day on some sort of program element. We spend more time figuring out how we can connect the founders together because that's where serendipity happens. I know that if I get a founder together in the same room and they're all talking about what they're struggling with, they'll figure out how to solve that problem together. And that's the value of the program on another level is having those founders get together. The first year of COVID, we had all virtual program and we thought, man, that's going to be really hard to do to build camaraderie around the founders. But what we did was we made sure to connect them more intentionally, whether that was through Slack or having lots of programming through zoom, whatever it was. Now those founders are flying all over the country to go meet each other for the first time. Right. Um, it's that camaraderie that helps um, make their network, you know, that help, help build their network together. So a good example of this is um, this year we were able to finally bring founders together. Most of our programming was virtual, but we, every now and then we brought the founders to Seattle where the program's based. We had one founder that was demonstrating their product and another founder was videotaping it and then took that video and sent it to one of their former employers, you know, uh, whoever was in charge of that business unit. That founder then got business from that That other company. So there's ways where, you know, you connect with everybody and those programs that do that are really valuable. But if you're spending your time like, okay, that was really valuable. I bet you I can get more value out of this one. Then you're, you're just spending more time program hopping than you are finding your customers, which is so critical to the survival of your, of your company.
0: And there's so many great resources out there now too, that you can consume in your own time. You know, I do the startup school looked at some of their stuff from Y Combinator, just great. But there's just, with the age of the internet, and Naval Mm -hmm. talks about this, you can learn almost anything. I mean, that's how I taught myself how to podcast, if I'm being honest, right? Jumped on YouTube, YouTube University, built out Ironbound Media. But I like what you said about, like, not just being selfish with the program, because that's what a lot of people do. They just show up and they're trying to extract value. Then they go to the other one they try to extract value. But like you said, making those real connections while driving biz dev. You know, and actually building a successful uh, uh building a successful business. Well, and also puts more pressure on the programs themselves because to your point, like
1: I can send a link to anybody and teach them financial modeling. You can find YouTube and learn more about SEO or you know, um, you know, whatever skills you need to have as a business owner. So the the good programs out there are run by founders, have an amazing network and can really help build your business beyond just the academic part. And, um, and so that's what separates good
0: programs to great programs. I have a couple more questions before we wrap up, but I had to get this yeah. off. When we talked the first time you emphasize financial modeling, right? You oh just brought it up there. I want that yeah. link, right? Tell yeah. our listeners what is so important about financial modeling, even if you're an early stage, you know, yeah. venture backable startup or small business.
1: Uh, Because it's the engine by which you can understand the health of your business, right? Like Troy Hennikoff has a great video and I'm actually in the room for this video that he has. But it really talks about like if you have all of your market assumptions, you know, the industry average assumptions in your first tab and you're building in really good formulas, you will know to the day when you're going to run out of money you will know that if I put $500,000 into your business, what that's going to do to your revenue, right? A good financial model is better than a deck. And so when I meet founders for the first time, I ask for their financial model. I don't want to see your deck. Your deck is going to be filled with lies. I don't care. Your every deck has the same thing, right? The little hockey stick. We're going to grow in the next five years and have $40 million in revenue. Cool. What do you need my money for? Let me see your financial model. That's what I want to see. Because if I put in, you know, whatever dollar amount is gonna be for the investment, I wanna see how that's gonna help your revenue. I wanna see what the EBITDA is gonna be. I wanna know what your you know CAC, your LTV, I wanna see all of that stuff. Because one, it shows that you're thinking about your business and the numbers that drive it. And two, if you're gonna use it beyond just building it, then I know that's probably a good founder that's thinking about and obsessed about the numbers, not just the business
0: what is a good resource on financial modeling for those of us without the financial, like I'm a history major. (laughs) I I got my master's in American studies and I'm sure there's some grunts chewing crayons like me that are like, all right, I hear you financial modeling, but like, how do I learn this?
1: Yeah. There's a great amount of resources on YouTube that talk about this. There's a lot of web uh, on medium. There's a lot of really good resources on medium that talk about financial model. Uh, Go find a, a template. And go play with it. Look at it. Just play with it. And then when you have enough confidence, like go build your own from scratch. Don't use a template and then like think you're going to be able to blank everything out and use it for your own business. You like you have to build it from scratch. And the reason I say that is if you build it from scratch, one, you're going to know that financial model inside and out. You're going to know all the formulas that you built to, to make that financial model work. The other is that you're going to want to use it more versus if like you just took a template and blanked it out, it's not going to be as valuable to you. So I think there are a lot of ways that you can figure out how to build it that caters to your business, but like start with the fundamentals, like go online, YouTube, medium are great resources for that, uh, and go and just go build one. It's there. We do it the first week, every program. And for three days, I watch founders just like going, Oh my God, that is amazing. And they just go, they geek out over it because now they can literally see all the numbers in their business. And it's it's game-changing.
0: It'll change your mindset if you build your financial model the right way. Roger that. Last two questions. Yep. As we close out, right, what advice would you like to leave our listeners with? Words of encouragement as they continue on their own entrepreneurial journey. And number two, as a community, how can we support and elevate the work you're doing now with 1859 and uh, Blue, what is it called again? Blue? Oh, maritime Blue. Yeah. Yeah, Maritime Blue. So the first question,
1: uh, you know, what advice I, what I would say is if you are going to be a founder, find a mentor, like I think that's true for any industry you get yourself into and any level that you're wanting to get into is find mentors, find mentors that can help contextualize the journey because you're going to get it in your head that, man, this is really hard. How do I overcome this problem? Like this is the end of the world. Uh, it's going to scuttle everything I do. And then you're going to talk to some mentor and be like, no, you just do this and you're like, oh shit, that was amazing. Really simple. Um, we get into our own head, we get blinders, we get laser focused on our business, and we're not able to see outside the box. Somebody that is a mentor can come in and contextualize that journey for you. Not only that, they'll be able to see outside the box. The other I will say is as veterans, we take criticism really easily, right? Like I I had a, um, a founder that was German in WeWork Labs, and she's like, I am so thankful that you have a military background because you're gonna tell me unfiltered what I need to hear. Um, Just know that most mentors that are talking to you and giving you advice, if they're critical of something, they're not critical of you personally. They're not saying, Mike, you suck. They're saying, This idea needs improvement, and here's how we can improve it. Right. So you need to take that and separate you from the business and understand that none of this is personal. All of this is about how does this business grow? So whether it is your co founder, your employees, or a mentor, like take that feedback and really run with it and take it to heart because they're really trying to find the best for you. And, um, and, and when you're talking to a mentor, say, hey, look, shoot me straight. I want to hear, you know, hurt my feelings. Tell me my shit sucks because I think it's amazing. And the more you get that feedback, the more you understand what it is that you're trying to do. It goes back to my earlier point, right? Like you're getting that data that you can then sort of modify your hypothesis. But it's all about gathering that data in the early stages of your business. Without it, you're just sort of flying blind, right? Um, words of encouragement. Look, this shit's hard, man. It is really, 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 really hard. Uh, don't give up. You know, the best uh, advice I've ever given founders about how they think about venture funding is being tenacious. the The founders that I talk to that are still doing stuff six months, seven months, eight months down the road that haven't given up. Those are probably founders that are tenacious enough to keep it going. And those are the ones I want to invest in. Um, There's a founder here that I love. I mean, him and his wife are amazing. His name's Darren Buckner. He has a startup called WorkFrom.co. It's basically uh, Yelp for workspaces. Tells you how fast their Wi-Fi is. Is it a good space? Is it quiet? Does it have plenty of room? Um, For, I don't know, seven years, this guy got nothing. No attention. Guess what happened? COVID hit. Now suddenly people want to know more about the workspaces that are available, that are quiet, that are COVID friendly, that have good, you know, masking options that are, you know, having their employees do the, you know, hand sanitizing or they have hand sanitizer available. He ended up going through Techstars Anywhere, got a great amount of investment and is crushing it, right? It wasn't an overnight success. He was grinding it out for seven plus years of just doing this. Finally, somebody took notice. And rewarded him for for being tenacious. This is hard. Just keep going. Don't give up. Um, there are ideas that obviously need you know to go in the back and be shot in the in the head. But like those, you'll recognize those, and people will hopefully tell you like this is a bad idea. I had one founder sit across from me, and they were like, "I want to do a garden as a service." And I went, "That's great. How have you proven that out?" "Oh, I don't. I, I this is just an idea I, I came up with. Go prove it out." right? The best way you can prove out your idea is somebody will pay you money for it. If nobody's going to pay you money for it and you've been trying and trying and trying and trying, pivot, find out what they will pay for. So that's my, that's my advice. Um, how can people help with Maritime Blue and 1859? I think, you know, both are just, they're amazing programs. If you are um, a mentor and want to keep mentoring uh, I'm always looking for people that want to talk to our founders, uh, whether it's through eighteen fifty nine or Maritime Blue. I'm always looking for somebody that can take their uh, experience and make it somebody else's experience or have their network be our founders network. Um, so if they want to reach out to me, um, you know I'm sure I'll you you'll give everybody my contact information, but um, yeah, I, that's the best way people can help. But at the end of the day, what I want people to do is help founders. Like, you don't have to help my founders. You don't have to help founders that go through my programs. Go help founders. Like, everybody that is doing this is doing this because they're obsessed with solving a problem. Help make their, their, their business a little easier. Invest a little bit of money in them, especially underrepresented founders, right? Um, make a connection. And introduce them to a, an investor or a mentor. Like that's the best way you can help our ecosystem is just being helpful. And I love the Techstars mantra, which is give first. And when I'm building our cohorts out, I look for founders that give more than they take. That's what I want. I want people in our community to give more than they take. Um, and that that's what I'm looking for.
0: Josh, man, I appreciate you. It's been an honor to connect with you. So glad to have you on the platform with me, man. We dropped a lot of gems today. And again yeah. I was over here taking notes like a mofo, right? <laughs> and one of the things I was I'm probably doing the episode on this is called The Cost of Doing Business, right? Which yeah. are those hard lessons that can only be learned sometimes when you're in the arena. Um and so I'm excited for your book, Too Startup Failures. I wrote my own book. I know how hard it is. But I can't wait to um be able to read that and spread that around the community. So where can people find you at? How can they get a hold of you?
1: I mean, LinkedIn is probably the best. I'm not on social media anymore. I just, as a person, just, I was like doom scrolling and I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Uh, But LinkedIn has always been a great place for people to find me. And if they're connected to you, Mike, they can find me pretty easily. Um, People can email me too. I'm just josh at uh, 1859.vc, 1859.vc. They can just email me and I'm happy to to provide any advice I can provide. Um, But those are the easiest ways to find me
0: love it for all our listeners do me a favor go ahead and hit that subscribe button to the transition podcast if you haven't done so already and also be sure to subscribe to our newsletter at the link in the show notes if there's a topic you want me to cover on the show or in the newsletter feel free to reach out to me on linkedin at iron mike Stedman or message me directly at mike.stedman at bunkerlabs.org until next week everyone peace love and have a great rest of your week